Blessed word from our Lord. Do you ever wonder why some people get through tough times and, and others crumble? Why some businesses prosper and other businesses fail? Why some people come against the obstacles in their life and they go around them or get through them. And then other people get to obstacles in their lives and when they do, they, they stop. They, they don't persevere. This whole idea of inner strength is fascinating to us. A strength that can't be seen with the, the naked eye that propels some people to get through things that other people just don't seem to have. If you've been at Grace for at least two years, you know that a few, uh, two years ago, this past week, Ellie Kinsley died. Alec, a 16-year-old who um, died tragically in a car accident, godly young man. This week, I drove down. His parents have moved uh, down near Charlotte. And I drove down and had dinner with them and spent time in their home. And I loved the perseverance that I witnessed. Their deep love for the Lord two years later, their faith in Christ, they're talking about how they pray for us here at Grace. This inner strength that I honestly fed on, though I thought I was going to help them, uh, I'm there feeding on the grace of God in and through them, this inner strength. Several of you are battling or have battled cancer. It is those around us who watch you who are in awe at times of the inner strength you have to get through your battle with cancer. And then there's the guy that Trent and I saw Thursday morning. Uh, I've seen him several mornings. Uh, I was taking Trent to school. When we left Old Fort, he's on his bicycle. He wears a bright green jacket. He is riding a bicycle down Highway 70. I take Trent to school. I drop him off. I'm coming back. And he's down at Hawkins Lumber from Old Fort. He's made it almost to Hawkins Lumber. He works third shift in Old Fort, rides his bike to work, gets off work at 7, and rides a bicycle all the way to Marion. I want to meet that guy. What is it in you that has this this inner strength that you get on a bicycle and go to your uh, uh, 11P to 7A job? There's something about that guy's inner strength that I want to know about. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he writes to them about a need for inner strength. And there are a couple of reasons that those folks needed it uh, tremendously. And interestingly enough, the same reasons you and I do today. First of all, the church is young at Ephesus. It is a young church. And this young church is led by a young pastor. And so there's inexperience everywhere. 
But secondly, Ephesus is the center of worship of the goddess Artemis. If you come into that port city and look up on the hill, you'll see what some consider to be the eighth wonder of the ancient world. This massive temple built to Artemis. And uh, you say, well, Jerry, how big was this? The book of Acts in chapter 19 tells us. Paul had come to Ephesus and Paul has uh, left or Paul is there ministering. And as he is there ministering, a riot breaks out in the city. About that time, there arose no little disturbance. That means a real big one concerning the way, the way of Christ. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, who is the goddess, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So we've got Demetrius who's mass producing things related to the worship of Artemis. And there are these markets in the craftsman's cell. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but also, but, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Well, news flashed to Demetrius. All Asia and the world didn't worship Artemis. Right now, it may have seemed that way from his point of view. He hoped certainly more worshipers would come on the scene because he was making great money off the worship of Artemis. But this riot breaks out in the city. Ephesus needed inner strength. The believers needed something in here that would result in something out here. A young church in a very troubled culture. My, does that apply to us today? You need strength. I need strength. Now, Paul says, for this reason. Every time a writer says that, we have to look and find what the reason is. So what is the reason that Paul gives here for this reason? You go back to chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, and you'll discover that Paul refers to the Ephesian believers as they used to be separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Uh, Those aren't good names to have. Alienated, strangers, separated, and hopeless. Paul says, this is who you were. I love verse 13. But now in Christ, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul bows his knees. He says, because you were afar off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ because the culture around you is raging. And because since you used to be there and you're now here, that old nature is still in you. So you're still who you are, although you're not who you are because you're in Christ. The culture around you is just as bad as it's ever been. For this reason, I'm going to bow my knees before God the Father, and I'm going to pray for you. And how does he describe this? That according to the riches of his glory, 
Let me pause there for a moment. According to the riches of his glory, not according to your need. Not according to your need. You see, if you pray to God according to your need and to your need alone, you'll end up with a scarcity mentality and you'll honestly wonder if God one day is going to run out of fill in the blank. Is is one day he going to run out of grace? Is one day God going to run out of strength? If you pray only according to your need, but Paul prays according to his riches in glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Where? In your inner being. Paul is saying, I'm going to pray for inner strength. Inner strength. And there will be four results of that. The first one is this, Christ will dwell in your hearts. Now that ought to raise a question for you. We've been reading the book closer than close. In the book, we discover that Christ already dwells in our hearts. If Christ already dwells in our hearts, why in the world would we need to pray for Christ to dwell in your hearts? Here's why. There's something called positional truth and practical truth. Positionally, Christ is in them. Practically, they must work it out. Positionally, Christ is in them. Practically, they must work it out. So you say, Jerry, how does that work? If Christ is in me, then isn't that enough? Well, the phrase to dwell in your hearts literally means to be at home in. To be at home in. All right, so Wendy and I have had more than a dozen uh, kids live with us besides ours, besides ours since we've been married. And when those kids come in for whatever period of time, we'll look at them and we'll say to them, now, uh, our house is your house and our stuff is your stuff and, and, and our bathrooms are your bathrooms and our food is your food and our TVs are your TVs. Welcome home. That's what this word means. This word means that you say to Christ, my heart is your home. Uh, this is your home. Robert, Robert Boyd Munger in that great work uh, that he wrote back in the 50s, I think. My heart, Christ's home. He talks about how Christ comes to live at home in our hearts when we trust him as our savior. And he talks about all the rooms of our, ha- of, our, of our lives that we open up to him. And then he gives this scenario. And the scenario is this. Christ has come to live in our hearts. And he makes his way through the rooms of our house and he goes upstairs and he smells an odor coming out of a closet. And what we do when he smells that odor coming out of the closet is we back ourselves up against the the door of that closet and say, oh no, you're not looking in that, Jesus. I'm not ready for you to walk into the closet. And Munger says, but Christ says, until I can be uh, at home in the closet, I can't be at home in your heart. And, and in that great little essay, you step back and Christ goes into the closet and begins to unearth that stuff that you thought you could hide from him all those years. That's what it means to make his heart your home. That's the first result of inner strength. Christ will dwell in your hearts. The second result is you will comprehend the love of Christ. You will comprehend. Now, there are two pictures here. I love it. It's a mixed metaphor. There's one called rooted and there's the other established. Rooted 
is a botanical term. Established is an architectural term. It's important that both are used and it's important the commonality between the two. So just hang with me for a moment. So rooted, what does that mean? Well, you guys know I love flowers, right? And I love to work in the yard. It kind of clears the cobwebs for me. And so right now I have a beautiful hydrangea tree blooming. And I have some green and white colored hydrangeas that are now turning the auburn color. They always turn. I've got a big blue hydrangea right behind our porch. Recently, my mom came by. We sat on the porch. We call it at our house porch sitting. Uh, We sat on the porch and uh, people drive by and blow the horn and we wave and we talk about them. I'm just kidding. We just talk. And so we're sitting there and mom sees the blue hydrangea behind me. And she, when she sees it, my mom is just like the quintessential, I now have an iPhone. So I should take pictures of everything I see. And so she said, I need to take a picture of that. Okay. Do you know what has never happened in all the years with all the flowers that bloom at my house at different times? No one has ever stopped or sat on the porch and said, Jerry, those flowers have amazing roots. Not once. But if it weren't for the roots, there would be no blooms. Isn't that interesting? And so Paul goes here for an unseen characteristic. When he talks about being established, he talks about a foundation. A foundation on which the house is built. I've seen many beautiful homes. I walk into those homes. I look around. I see, you know, the architecture of the home or the masonry, the stonework of the home. I've yet to walk into a home and go, wow, what an amazing foundation this must be built on. Why? Nobody notices, but it is what Paul says you cannot see that is of utmost importance. Now, to comprehend is to lay hold of, to get a grip on. What is it then that we must get a grip on? The love of Christ. The love of Christ is the roots that we can't see that causes the fruit of the Spirit to grow. The love of Christ is the foundation on which the house is built. That when the storms assail the house, the house doesn't fall down. This week I had a student approach me. She had a very legitimate question. She came up to me and said, Dr. Lewis, I have a question for you. Yes. She said, in the Old Testament, when God became angry with the people after they made the golden calf, when God became angry with those people, and he said to Moses, I want to annihilate those people. She said, I don't get that God in the Old Testament who's ready to kill people and the God in the New Testament who seems ready to save them. Why is it that there is a difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God? And so, so I said to her, we must establish one foundational truth. Scripture teaches that God is immutable. That means he doesn't change Why? Because perfection never gets worse and it can't get any better. God is God is God. He's always been, always will be. The immutability of God is an undeniable cardinal theological premise upon which we understand all of Scripture. So I said, so there's no God of the old, God of the new, and somehow he shifted I said, but if the New Testament doesn't have it as its centerpiece a cross, and on that cross, Christ died, 
And the wrath that God wanted to point, pour out on Moses in the Old Testament, Moses was a, an imperfect intercessor. Yes, he interceded for the people and he stayed God's wrath off of them and God did not annihilate them and Moses pleaded on their behalf. But on the cross, there was a better and more a perfect uh, intercessor who intervened for the people and all of God's wrath for all of the sins of mankind were poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. Did God cease to be a God of wrath in the uh, New Testament? No, he simply unbelievably funneled all of his wrath on his only son, Jesus Christ, so that Christ from the cross will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that cry, demonstrate the distance created between him and his father because of all of that wrath poured out on him. And I looked at the students so that you, with all your sin and I, with all mine, could plunge beneath the blood of Christ and be forgiven of our sins. The God in the Old Testament is the God of the New. Jesus Christ demonstrates a deep love for us. He loved us then. He loves us now. you got to know some stuff in order to comprehend the love of God in Christ. That's where inner strength comes from. Strong foundation, deep roots in love of Christ. Where? How do you get it? With all the saints. All right, so you guys may tire of me saying this every week. I don't care. I'm going to keep saying it. With all the saints means you got to be in community, you got to be in a life group. There's no replacement for that. So let me share from my group experience. It's a couple weeks ago. And we're in group. And while we're in group, we're talking about, can you get an image of what it means to be in Christ? And never have I been able to get an image of that. I just can't get it. I believe it, right? Believe it theologically. Can't get the image. When a couple of people down from me on the sofa, Amanda Fuller is sitting here this morning. And she says, this is how it's helped me. She said, I just feel... In those times when I am in Christ, that I am held by him. I am held by him. Now, I have two master's degrees and I have a doctorate. And you would think with all of that, that somehow I would arrive at this place. That's not how I got it. I hate to puff her up because I'll hear about this, but it was from Amanda (laughs) in group. And when she said that, this old song came back to my mind that I grew up singing. But I didn't get growing up. But all of a sudden, dots began to connect. And I thought of being in Christ, like being in the rock. And I've been to Israel. And rocks over there aren't like rocks over here. They're full of caves. And when you're in there, you're safe. 
I've never gotten this before. Some of you may be worlds beyond me with this. And if so, I'm so glad. I'd never gotten this before and would not have gotten it had I not been sitting in my living room with, I mean, if you were to come visit us, we have to be the most dysfunctional life group on the planet. But... uh, But we're sitting in there and I get it that way. And this song begins to roll through my head. And as it begins to roll through my head, I have a piano in my living room. And I said, hey, this song is rolling through my head. I think I ought to sing it. I go over to the piano. I sit down. I begin to play. And these are the words of that song. It goes like this. In the dark of the midnight have I oft hid my face. While the storm howls above me and there's no hiding place. Mid the crash of the thunder, precious Lord, hear my cry. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. And I will tell you that since then, I can't get that image out of my mind. Neither do I want to. Paul says, if you're going to get this, you're going to get it with... All the saints. What are you going to get? The breadth, the length, the height, the depth. All right. For all you nerds, there's a definite article one, the, in front of, in front of breadth, length, height, depth. Why? It shows the immensity of the object. The immensity of it. What is so immense that it would be long and high and deep and wide? The love of Christ. The immensity of the love of Christ. You will comprehend the love of Christ. Third, you will experience the love of Christ. It is one thing to know it intellectually, but you can experience it. You can feel it. You can sense it. You can know that you love Christ. You say, how do you know this means experience? You know. Know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? The only way to know anything that you can't know is to experience it. All right, so the way to know something you can't know is to experience it. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Well, about 16 years ago, I married Wendy. I'm in love with her. She's in love with me. We love each other. I cannot explain that. I cannot easily put that into words. I can't. I love her. I love being with her every day. I love seeing her in the mornings. I love coming home to her at night. But I cannot put that into words. Words are unable to describe that. I experience it. 
If your relationship with God can be reduced to words and it can be, and that's all you got, you've never experienced the love of Christ. When you are so loved by him and you're so in love with him that you can't describe it. You can't talk about it. You're like, words escape me to describe this love. Then you're experiencing his love. Peter O'Brien, who's written a great commentary on the book of Ephesians, says Paul is not praying that they will love Christ more, however important this might be. Rather that they might understand Christ's love for them. All right, please hear me. I'm convinced you don't begin by trying to love him more, but you begin by knowing more his love for you. All right, so there's an example. We find it in the Gospels, in the book of Luke. You'll see it on the screen. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So a Pharisee invites Jesus over for, for dinner. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city. Let me just say, That's not a good title. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing where? All right, standing where? Behind him. She didn't even feel worthy to come around and look him in the eye. Uh, Let me pause before we finish this account and and to say that some of you kind of sneaked in here today because you don't feel worthy to look God in the eye. You just sneaked in. Maybe I'll kind of go around behind him. Your sin right now is overwhelming you and you're overwhelmingly sorry for it. We're glad you're here. We're glad you sneaked in. So she comes around behind him and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, I love that, right? He's having one of those little self conversations. Like maybe one of you have when you looked across the way and went, oh, she's here. Hmm. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what the sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him. I love that too. Jesus answered a guy who never said a word. Why is that? Because Jesus might be able to read your mind. Just newsflash. He might know what you're thinking right now. So Jesus answered him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. Notice the arrogance of Simon. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Let me pause. Then what? Turning toward the woman. She thought, I can't look him in the face. He thought, I can't not look you in the face. 
can't be like this. Then turning toward the woman. If he turns toward her, who's his back to? Simon. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet. All of these are customary things Simon should have done for a guest in his home. Shows the arrogance of Simon. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me say, let me ask you this morning, how much has God forgiven you? How much? How deep are your sins? How awful are they? How heinous are they? How, how, how many times have you done the same thing again and again and again? And how many times has he forgiven you? The more you experience his forgiveness of your sins, the more you will love him. You will experience the love of Christ. The fourth result is you will be filled with God. You will be filled with God that you may be filled with all the fullness of God because of their union with Christ, with the resurrected Lord. Everything in God is in them. Like all the power that raised Christ from the dead lives and dwells in them and in you too. And in you too. You say, well, why do I not feel that way? We're back to where we started. Positional truth and practical truth. In other words, we are to become who we already are. We are to become who we already are. And in order to be filled with all the fullness of God, guess what has to get out? Anything that isn't God. Right? Anything that isn't God, whatever sin it is, whatever attitude, whatever pride, whatever it is that isn't God, you'll never be filled with the fullness of God if you're filled with the fullness of anything else. Or if you have anything else in your life, then God can't fill you if you've got one thing. You'll have God in the rest, right? Someone has said if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. He wants the hall closet too. Our praise team is going to come. Paul wells up into this massive, amazing verse. Now to him. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Do you know what far more abundantly means? A whole lot. It's three superlatives strung together far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to what? The power at work within us. Not your needs, not your situation, but his power. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen.
To him be glory in the church throughout all generations. And Paul ends that way. So this morning, I want you, we're going to watch a video. We're going to sing a song. Go ahead and stand. The video is going to roll. And we're going to praise this God in who dwells in us.